Our Father, as we come to your word today, we come with humble hearts, knowing that apart from you, apart from your Holy Spirit illuminating the text for us, Lord, we could not understand and we could not apply if we didn't understand. So we pray, Lord, for understanding. We pray for clarity. And we pray that we would see, Lord, what we can learn about you from this passage and how it applies to our lives, what you would have us do in light of this text, that we may live obedient lives that glorify Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. We're going to be finishing up the 15th chapter of Genesis, looking at verses 7 through 21 today. Genesis chapter 15, verses 7 to 21. And this is a passage about assurance. And assurance is a wonderful thing when it comes to God. There's a story of a couple, a husband and wife, who sought marriage counseling. And as they sat down with the counselor and he starts poking and prodding with questions and trying to get them to open up, the wife noted that the husband hadn't told her that he loved her in years. She couldn't remember the last time he had said it. And so the counselor turned to the husband and said, well, what do you have to say? Do you love her? And the husband's response was, I told her I loved her 26 years ago. I haven't changed my mind since. And we kind of laugh at that because it's an obnoxious idea that you would take 26 years and not tell somebody that you love them. But the thing is, we all understand how necessary it is to hear it. To be loved is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But to know that you are loved is an even better thing. And perhaps part of learning to know that you're loved is hearing it on a regular basis. Because we are sinners. Because when you're in a house with other people, they're going to see your sin. They're going to know you. And so to hear that they love you anyway is an amazing thing. And that's true of our closest relationships on earth between people. But as Christians, it's true in a spiritual sense as well. In fact, if you wanted to, to design a, a top 10 list of reasons to go to church, I'd put that on that list. Because you need to hear that God loves you. You need to be reminded over and over and over again of what was done for God to redeem you. Because the more you're reminded of it, the more you will come to believe it. The more assurance you will have, the more you will be assured that it is true, that God loves you in spite of your faults. He redeemed you. As I was speaking with a good friend a couple weeks ago at the Shepherds Conference, we were talking about having the gospel at the center of every aspect of the service, of a, of a, a typical church service on Sunday morning. And I told him that I feel like it's, it's necessary for the gospel to be at the center of every aspect, whether it's the prayer or uh, you know, singing or, or preaching. It needs to be at the center because the gospel is like a firm and sturdy piece of wood that you use as a step, but it keeps coming loose and needs to be nailed back in again and again and again. Not because there's a problem with that piece of wood, not because there's a problem with the gospel, 
but because there's a problem in our hearts. It keeps coming loose. The wood that's holding the one step in place isn't sturdy. And so we need to be reminded of God's love. When it feels like prayers are going unanswered, when it feels like your life hits a patch of black ice on the highway of life and you're just spinning out of control, we need to be reminded of God's love. We need to be reminded that God has not abandoned us. We need to be reminded that He is with us. We need to be reminded that He is for us and that nothing can separate us from Him. We need assurance. And God wants us to have assurance. True assurance. And that's where Abram was when we left off a couple weeks ago. If you'll remember, he was scared. He had, he had gone to war where he had uh, come against these kings. He, he had gone to these kings and defeated their armies, brought Lot back because they had kidnapped Lot. He was a prisoner of war. And as he came back and was trying to go to sleep that night, he was scared. And he was feeling uncertain. And so God comes to him. Before Abram says anything to God, before Abram prays to God, before Abram brings his problems to God, God comes to him and says, basically, I'm your refuge, Abram, and I am your reward. And he brings Abram out under the canopy of the stars, the the, the night sky, and he promises Abram that his descendants will be as uncountable as all the stars in the sky. And you might think that somebody like Abram, Think about it. He's the man who's known as the father of the faith. You might think that the man who's known as the father of the faith would never struggle with doubts. The the, the man who's known as the father of the faith would never have to ask questions, would never need to feel personally assured of God's steadfast love on a regular basis. But nothing could be further from the truth. Over and over, God has reassured him of his promises Even Abram struggled with feeling like there was a lack of assurance. God had assured Abram that the promised Savior of the world would come through his offspring, and Abram believed. He believed in Christ. Before 2,000 years, 1,500 years before Christ walked the earth, Abram believed in Christ. He had faith, and God credited that to him. Remember verse 6, most important verse in the Old Testament. God credited or imputed his belief, his faith to him as righteousness. And Abram, like us, we have to remember, Abram had no righteousness of his own. Like us, the best he had to offer God was just filthy rags. The righteousness that he had was entirely of God. The righteousness that he had wasn't his own. It was entirely of God. So verses 1-6, to really, to summarize it, it was God's assurance to Abram that he would have a son, that God would be faithful to give him an offspring to inherit the land. So Abram was assured of God's promise to give him a son, but the land. There was nothing said in those verses really about the land. God had promised to do this, but would God really give this land to Abram and his offspring? So our passage today is going to cover the establishment of what theologians call the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant that God makes with Abram, Abraham or Abram. Uh, and what we're going to see in this passage is that God wants His people to walk and live with true assurance. That God will be faithful 
That God's promises and God's purposes will all be fulfilled. And we can be assured of that. So we start with verses 7 to 11. Genesis chapter 15, verses 7 to 11 say, And he said to him, and God said to, to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now the text doesn't explicitly tell us what's going on in Abram's mind, but we can figure it out because of what the Lord says to him next. It seems that Abram probably spent quite a bit of time between verses 6 and 7 gazing at the stars. And then God comes to him again with words of assurance. It doesn't tell us that Abram is struggling with doubts and feelings of uncertainty about the land. But the fact that God speaks words of assurance about the land to Abram in verse 7 reveals to us, it tells us what was going on in the depths of Abram's heart, in his mind. This is what he was, he was thinking about. This is what he was concerned about. Is it ever okay to doubt God? That's an important question. Is it ever okay to doubt God? Well, it's never okay to disbelieve God. Because to disbelieve God is to believe that He's a liar. And you don't want to do that. But is it okay to struggle? I'd say it is okay to struggle. Insofar as that struggle doesn't cause you to sin, doesn't lead you to sin, doesn't cause you to blaspheme God by calling Him a liar. Consider two characters in the New Testament who struggled. The first one we find in Luke chapter 1. His name was Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest, and the text tells us that he was righteous, that he walked in obedience to God. But he had no children, and he and his wife, Elizabeth, were elderly. Hmm, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? And so one day, as, as Zechariah is in the temple and he's doing his priestly duties in the temple, an angel appears to him, Gabriel appears to him and tells him, you and your wife are going to have a son to be named John, as in John the Baptist. And Zechariah's response to this news is skepticism. It is disbelief. And so he asks the angel, he asks Gabriel, how shall I know this? And instantly, he is stricken mute. He can't talk until his wife has his son. The second person that I want us to consider is Anonymous. We never learn what his name is, but he is present in the New Testament. His son was possessed by an evil spirit. And so the man brings his son to Jesus and the man says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus' response, it's kind of funny, he says, if you can, as if he's bewildered that this man would have even a shadow of a doubt. If you can, and he says all things are possible for one who believes. 
And so what does the man say to Jesus? He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. He doesn't say, Jesus, come on, give me a break, man. I'm, my, my son is suffering here. I'm, I'm trying to believe. He doesn't say, if you heal him, then I'll, I'll believe. No. The man responds to Jesus by saying, I believe. Help my unbelief. And what he's doing there is he's acknowledging that his, he does have faith, but his faith is weak. His faith is small. His faith needs help. And so there is an enormous, an absolutely enormous chasm. There is a, an, an enormous difference between skeptical doubt and weak or small faith. God will honor our desire to help grow our faith in moments when there's a battle going on between believing and unbelieving within us. When we realize, when we recognize that, that our faith is weak, our faith is small, He's, he's willing to help us if we'll, if we'll call out to Him, but we must always seek His help in faith. Faith is what pleases God. Lacking faith or having no faith never pleases God. God doesn't accuse Abram of lacking faith. God will honor a weak faith. God will honor a small faith that desires to be strengthened, that desires assurance. And so when Abram asks God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He's not saying, I don't believe you're going to do it. He's saying, how am I going to know? How am I going to know? And God doesn't chastise Abram. God doesn't rebuke Abram. God doesn't discipline Abram. Why not? Because God wants His people to have and to live by and walk in true assurance. And so God instructs Abram what to do. He says, bring me three heifers, or bring me a heifer that's three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. See, in ancient Mesopotamian culture, uh, the means by which two parties would enter into an agreement, kind of a contractual covenantal agreement, would be by killing a donkey. They'd take a donkey, they'd kill it, they'd divide it into two halves, and they would walk between the two halves. And the purpose of using the donkey, it's not that donkeys were necessarily just disposable, like they're everywhere, like weeds. No, it's because donkeys are actually a commodity. And so it's not something that's being taken lightly. And so they would take a donkey and they would cut it in half and they'd walk between it and lay out the terms and conditions of their agreement. The implication was, by, by severing the donkey, by, by splitting the donkey in half, the implication was, if I don't do what I have promised to do, then I deserve the fate of this animal, basically. God doesn't ask for a donkey, though. Instead, He instructs Abram to bring him five animals, each of which is kind of a foreshadowing, if you think about it. Each of these five animals would become standard sacrificial animals under the law of Moses. And so, perhaps this is a little bit of foreshadowing of what was yet to come, but these animals aren't sacrificed we need to understand that. that This is not a sacrifice. You know, when there's a sacrifice, there's, uh, there's a fire, there's an altar. That, you know, they, they, burn, they would burn the animals uh, for God, for the Lord. And that's not what happens here. There's no altar, there's no ceremony, there's no fire by which Abram or God would sacrifice them. 
So Abram kills the animals, creating a gruesome and, and bloody covenant path between them. And this sets the stage for the establishment of what we call the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant that God establishes with Abram. But this isn't actually the first time that we've seen a covenant in the book of Genesis. In chapters 6 and 9, we saw God establish a covenant with Noah, if you remember. God established a covenant with Noah in which God vowed, He, he, he promised, never to flood the earth, to destroy the earth in a flood again. Now the covenant that God made with Noah was a little bit different than the covenant that God made with Abram. The covenant with Noah extended to absolutely all people. Every person, every person who's walked the earth, every person who's lived since then has been a beneficiary of the covenant that God had established with Noah. Not so with the Abrahamic covenant, however. The Abrahamic covenant would extend First and foremost, to Abram's descendants in the physical sense. Secondly, it would be extended to Abram's spiritual descendants, those who, like Abram, placed faith in Christ, thereby entering into the essence of this covenant that God establishes with Abram. And we don't use the term covenant very often. That's kind of an obscure term in our day, I don't know, maybe you associate it with vampires or something like that. So let's make sure that we understand exactly what a covenant is. Let's establish a working definition for covenant. If you were to look it up in the dictionary, I think that you would get a definition that would mislead you. The, the, de, uh, the, the dictionary definition for covenant is, quote, an agreement, usually formal, between two or more persons to do or not do something specified. And personally, I, I don't like that definition at all because that is not biblically what a covenant is exactly. With a definition like that, a covenant is really no different than a contract uh, between two or more people to do or, or not do something. And biblically, there is an enormous difference between a covenant and a contract. Marriage, for example, is not a contract. It's not, I vow to do this. I'll love you till death do us part if you do this, 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 and this. No, it is I vow to do this. It's a covenant. It is a promise that you make unconditionally. So with that said, uh, biblically, a covenant is an unconditional vow or promise. A contract is going to involve negotiation and things like that. And we need more than a contract with God because let's face it, if we were to try and negotiate some kind of terms and conditions with God, we have absolutely nothing to offer. And so if we were to, to have a contract with God, man, we, we would sin. We'd break it immediately. So we have more than a contract with God. God establishes covenants. We need a promise. And that's what covenants are. They are promises. As we continue, we're going to see three specific aspects of God's covenants. And these covenants tell us a lot, not only about the covenants that God establishes with people, they tell us a lot about the God who establishes these covenants. The first thing that we'll see is that God alone establishes His covenants. Number one is God alone establishes His covenants. Number two is that they are irrevocable. And when I say that, I mean they can't be taken back. God will not change His mind. He will not change the terms and conditions of the covenant. He's not going to nullify the covenant. They are eternal. They are irrevocable. 
And number three, they are established entirely by the grace of God. Entirely by the grace of God. That is, it's not that we deserve the covenant promises that God makes. It's not that we can do anything to earn the promises that God makes. No, they are established entirely by the grace of God. And so Abram does what God asks. He goes and he gets these, these five animals and he brings them back and he, and he severs them and he, and he lays them out and he waits. And he waits. And he waits. And he waits over the carcasses of these animals and he probably starts wondering where God might be. He probably starts wondering when God is going to show up. Anybody ever been there? In fact, it seems that he spends the entire day chasing vultures and other birds of prey away from these animals that will serve as covenant, uh, covenant makers, the things that, that represent the covenant. But the story continues when evening comes. Let's look at verses 12 to 16. As the sun was going down, so this is all day, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. At this point in the story, Abram is an old man. And his wife is an old woman. And the fact that he had no offspring, the fact that he had no children, bothered him. It got under his skin. In fact, I'd say it probably got uh, more than just under his skin. It got into his heart. It didn't just bother him. It troubled him deeply. Perhaps especially because children in ancient Mesopotamian culture were considered to be a blessing. Children were considered to be a sign of God's favor with the individual. And the fact that he didn't have any offspring, therefore, he, he, he took the, the culture's ideas. He took the culture's philosophy and he imported it into his faith in God, which is what gave him trouble, by the way. He brings in this idea that if I don't have kids, I don't have God's favor. That's something we need to be on guard against, bringing in cultural ideas into our understanding about God, ideas that aren't found in Scripture. And so after spending the day preparing the animals by which God's promises would be sworn, And then chasing birds away, spending the entire day chasing birds away, Abram was exhausted. Abram was tired. And beyond that, I I would imagine that Abram was frustrated. He had done exactly what God had instructed. Promptly. He had done what God had instructed. He He had believed in God. God credited to him as righteousness. He had asked God for help. And then he waited for God to show up. But God is going to show up when God is going to show up. 
You guys know that? God shows up when God is going to show up. And when God shows up is completely out of Abram's control. That's something that Abram has no control, no hand in whatsoever. He can't control God. He can't manipulate God. He can't rush God. God is going to show up when God shows up. And God doesn't show up in his estimation all day. And so, he falls into a deep sleep as the sun goes down. The night before, he, he, he was stargazing all night, thinking about God's promises to him. And you know, it seems like this is all one continuous story. So he goes two days basically without sleep is what it looks like. And he's exhausted and frustrated, and so he goes to sleep. And as Abram is in this deep sleep, the Lord speaks to him. And he lets... Abram know what's going to happen in the future, which is something that only God can do. The stars can't tell you. A person can't tell you apart from God speaking through them and using them to convey a message. But God tells him directly what's going to happen in the future with his offspring. They'll be travelers. They'll be journeymen, sojourners in a foreign land where they will be oppressed where they will be afflicted, where they will undergo trials and tribulations for 400 years. 400 years. That's more than four times as long as the average person lives. That's almost twice as long as the United States has been a country. 400 years of affliction. That's, that's a long time. But God promises something. He promises that they will be blessed through this and that they will, they will leave with great possessions. First and foremost among those possessions would be the promises of God. God Himself would deliver them after 400 years. And why was God going to wait 400 years to give Abram's offspring the land? Why 400 years? Well, it's kind of a round number. But, that's, but the reason that he says he's going to do it in 400 years is because that's when God has sovereignly ordained to do it. That's when God has sovereignly ordained to deliver them from affliction, to bring them out of the land. And at that point, God will use His people to bring judgment upon the Amorites. And look what God says to Abram in verse 13. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain... Know for certain. How can Abram know for certain that this is what's going to happen to his offspring? Because God said so. Because the sovereign, eternal, immutable, omniscient, omnipotent God of the universe has sovereignly decreed it. He has ordained it. And when God ordains something, it is as good as done. It's going to happen. It's not going to happen because God looks into the future and He sees what's going to happen. No, God has never looked into the future to learn anything. We don't serve a God. We don't know a God who learns anything. We have a God who is all-knowing. It happens not because God sees what's going to happen, but because God has ordained that this is the way things are going to happen. God's promises wouldn't be fulfilled because Israel would start seeking God. 
No, God's promises are going to be fulfilled because God remembers His promises. They're not going to be fulfilled because God is going to step in and help the Israelites as if it might not happen if the Hebrew people don't do their part. No, God's promises are going to be fulfilled because God says His promises are going to be fulfilled. He says His promises will come to pass. He ordained it as only God, as the only sovereign authority in the universe can do. And that is why Abram could know for certain God would not only establish this covenant, but He alone would fulfill this covenant. By the way, people get all bent out of shape about God sending His people in to judge the Amorites. But maybe the reason they get bent out of shape is because they forget the fact that God waited 400 years for them to repent, and they didn't. But the point here is that the covenant would be established and fulfilled by God and God alone. And this is what you need to remember. This is what you need to know when you are struggling between belief and unbelief, when your faith is small, when you need assurance. This is what you need to remember. When trials come and you find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death, it's not because God isn't there. When you're in the valley of the shadow of death, it's not because God isn't in control. When you're going through trials, it's not because God has forgotten you. It's not because God has forsaken you. It might be 400 years of affliction, but God isn't going to forget you or nullify His promises to you. He won't forget His people. He's sovereign. God is sovereign. And He's with you. And He's for you. And His promises, if you are in Christ, His promises are as sturdy, as solid, as trustworthy as they've ever been. And so when you are struggling with uncertainty, when you are somewhere between belief and unbelief, when your faith is small and weak, stand on His promises with certainty. You can know for certain. You can rest on them with confidence. You can be filled with assurance, because God is faithful. God is always faithful to His promises. And so to prove and illustrate that God and God alone would fulfill this covenant, God alone ratifies the covenant. Let's look at verses 17 to 21. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot And a flaming torch passed between these pieces, that is, the pieces of the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That's a lot of ites. That's a lot of people who currently possess this land. And God says, no, you don't. No, you don't, because it's all God's. And God can do with it what God pleases. God is the one who initiated everything with Abram. God's the one who appeared to Abram in Ur of the Chaldeans. He's the one who called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He's the one who delivered him and brought him through the journey 
to Canaan. He's the one who promised to give Abram and his offspring all this land. God has made promise after promise after promise. God has initiated absolutely everything. It was all God's doing. All Abram did was receive what God gave him, what God had promised. And so as God establishes the covenant with Abram, there are no negotiations that take place here. There are no terms and conditions that Abram has any part in, in establishing. There are, there's, there's no fine print in, in some kind of contract that gets drawn up here. None of that. This, this wasn't a hook. There's, there's, no, there's no bait here. God just makes a covenantal vow here. He makes a promise to Abram here. In verse 17, we learn that Abram sees two things as night falls. He sees two symbols, which, both of which reveal something to us about the nature of God. First, Abram sees a smoking fire pot. And we might ask, what in the world is that? Because we don't have smoking fire pots except when we're you know, cooking something or you know, sitting outside at a fire pit or something like that. So what exactly is a smoking fire pot? It's a miniature furnace that was used in ancient cultures to purify and to refine and cleanse precious metals. What you'd do is you'd put the precious metals in the smoking fire pot and it would get hot enough that the impurities and all the filth and all the junk would just rise to the top and that stuff could all be skimmed off and what you'd be left with is pure, pure precious metals. So this would separate the dross. This would separate all the impurities, all the worthless junk from the metal. And this is a picture, this is an illustration that the Bible uses repeatedly for the way that God refines His people. Through fire. Through heat. Through trials and tribulations. In fact, that's what Peter is talking about in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-7. to He writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? Verse 7, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you get what Peter's saying there? He's saying you're going through trials because you're faithful. Because you have faith in God. You are enduring affliction. You are going through hardship because God loves you enough to refine you. God loves you enough to put you through this fire and get all the impurities out of your life, which is exactly what happens in the valley of the shadow of death that doesn't happen so much on the mountaintops of life. We draw close to God in the valleys, in times when we realize how desperately we need Him. 
God loves you enough. If you are in Christ, God loves you enough to refine you through the fires of temporary trials. God loves you enough to bring all the impurities of your life out to the surface where they can be taken out. Do you see that? That's what Peter's saying here. Trials aren't an indication that God is not with you or that God is against you. If you are in Christ, that's not what a trial is. It's not to say that He has forsaken you. No, a trial is actually an indication that He is with you, that He is for you, that He hasn't forgotten you or forsaken you, and that He loves you so much that He would go through whatever is necessary to grow you in the likeness of Christ, to purge the impurities from your life through trials, through tribulation through testing, through difficult times. And you might be tempted when that happens. You might be tempted to get angry at God. You might be tempted to get bitter at God. You might despise the fire. But God assures us that He causes all things to work for His glory and the good of His people. And with that in mind, the good of His people is to grow in Christ's likeness. And so we can take heart. We can face trials with courage and boldness because it tells us that God is is purifying us. He's purging you of your impurities. He who began a good work in you will complete it. And when He does, all the trials of life, all the fires, all the testing, all the things that have taken place in the valley of the shadow of death, You'll see them as means by which God has accomplished this purpose in you to refine you, to purify you. And in retrospect, you'll be able to look back on those things and see them as incredible blessings. That might happen in this life. It might be something that you have to wait until glory to understand fully. But you'll see that God has been with you through it all. So the first thing that he sees is the smoking fire pot that represents purification. The second thing that Abram sees is a torch. Verse 17 tells us that this torch passes between the two pieces of the animals. Abram doesn't pass between the pieces of the animals, and that's the way that a covenant would have been sworn in that culture. But Abram doesn't go between the pieces of the animals. This torch also represents God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. When God appeared to Moses, He appeared to him as a burning bush, as a, as a flame, as a, as a fire, as light. When Christ confronted and converted Paul on the road to Damascus, there was a bright light that shone all around Paul. The point is, God is light. God is represented by light. The custom was for everyone who was involved in the establishment of a covenant to walk between the pieces, but only God goes between the pieces, giving us irrefutable evidence that this covenant is by God and God alone. God is the one who would establish and fulfill the covenant. And so God says to him, verse 18, He says, I give this land. 
He doesn't say, I will give this land. Present tense. He says, I give this land. He doesn't say that He will. So what we can understand then is that this covenant is effective immediately. The Abrahamic covenant is effective immediately. God initiates, God establishes, and God confirms the covenant all by Himself. God's covenants are not only established and fulfilled by God and God alone, but secondly, they are irrevocable. They're unchanging. They can't be broken. God won't take them back. In Genesis 17, God's going to institute a sacrament that we refer to as circumcision. And this the sacrament is supposed to be a picture, a reminder of the covenant. And if there's anything that we know, or if there's anything that we can say about the act of circumcision, it's that it is permanent. You cannot go back. It is Once it's done, it is done, it is completed, and there is no going back. And that's the way God's covenants work. He will not change His mind. He's not going to decide at a later date, oh, I guess I should have done this or that instead. He's not going to nullify His promises. No, His promises are irrevocable. They are immutable. They don't change. They will not be nullified. God's not going to add some fine print to the contract later down the road. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. It's a promise. And this is exactly how God deals with us in the new covenant, which was established not by the blood of bulls or by the blood of goats or by the blood of beasts, but with the blood of Christ. When we come to Him, does He promise that He's going to only forgive our sins in the past? As if if we sin, the covenant that, that, we're, that we're under, the new covenant will be nullified. No, His, his atoning work on our behalf extends not only to our past sins and not only to our present sins, but to our future sins as well. Every sin will be forgiven, is forgiven in the new covenant. It's not that you know somewhere down the road God says, oh, well you sinned bigger than I thought you would. You sinned worse than I thought you would. You're not exactly who I thought you were, so I'm just going to nullify this covenant with you. No, he who began a good work in you will complete it. Because he knows it all. He sees the end from the beginning. Why would God begin a work that he's not powerful enough to complete? The reason that we are secure in our salvation is because God is the one who completes it. And his power is demonstrated in preserving his people through every circumstance through every moment in which our belief and our unbelief are at war with each other. The covenant, the new covenant, is eternal also. But wait, if God's covenants are eternal, here's the question that we've got to ask. Is the Abrahamic covenant still in place? And there are intelligent, noble People who have sought the truth, who have sought answers to this question for 2,000 years. And they've ended up on, in, in, in very, very different 
positions with very, very different answers. But there are basically two primary views. If you want to boil all the views down, there are two primary views on this question. The first is the amillennial view. And that is the view that, uh, that those who hold this position, they say that the promises regarding the land won't be literally fulfilled for ethnic Israel, for, for the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, that is. They say that, this is only, that there's only a, a spiritual fulfillment which applies only to the church. In other words, they interpret this promise allegorically which I believe is very, very dangerous. Anytime, I'm not saying that there's no allegory in the Bible. Of course there is. But when we interpret something allegorically, there had better be something in the text that specifically tells us or indicates that this is to be interpreted allegorically. Otherwise, we could just say, you know, this is all a struggle. But, you know, this is a, an allegory. The whole Bible is an allegory about fill in the blank. The United States... Uh, the establishment of the United States, it's an allegory about... No, it's not. You don't have permission to just allegorize anything wherever you want, wherever it doesn't make sense. So the first view is the amillennial view, which essentially allegorizes this promise. The second view is the premillennial view. God's promise here was to be fulfilled in a literal sense, according to this view. This has never been fulfilled in a literal sense, And yet I don't believe that it's wise or proper or good practice to allegorize when it's not clearly the right thing to do. And you might say, well, you know, it's it's easy for us in our day and age to think that... um, that this should be interpreted literally since uh, Israel became a country again in 1948. And I, I would give... I'd say, yes, that is true to an extent, but at the same time... Charles Spurgeon in the 1850s was preaching that this was not allegory, but that this was something that God would have to do, that someday God would have to regather His people, the Jews, to the land. That was almost 100 years before it actually happened. And so, personally, I believe that the promise will be fulfilled literally. I take the, the premillennial view on this, that when Christ returns they will possess the land. In Revelation 14, we see a picture of 144,000 Jewish Christians, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes who join with Gentile believers in singing praises and singing glorious hymns to the Lord forever together. So God alone establishes and fulfills His covenants. The covenants of God are eternal. And the third thing is They are by grace alone. They are not earned. Nobody in the history of humanity has done anything to deserve God's promises except Jesus. They aren't deserved. They're not earned. What did Abram do to deserve God's call in his life? He didn't seek God. He didn't worship God. He didn't know God. He was a rebel sinner who, just like everybody else on the face of the earth, had suppressed the truth about God in unrighteousness as a worshiper of idols. So why did God call Abram? Why did God make all these covenant promises to Abram? For the same reason that He called you out of darkness. 
For the same reason that He removed the veil from the eyes of your heart so that you could behold the glory of Christ. For the same reason that He pulled you out of all the muck and mire and filth of human existence to be set apart, living for His glory, not for your glory. God did it for the same reason that He gives salvation. For the same reason that He gives life. For the same reason that He gives peace, joy, fellowship, and eternal security to all who repent and believe in Christ. He did it for the same reason He does it, which is because it pleases Him to do so. It pleases Him to do so. Were it not for God's grace, there would be no covenant. There would be no promises. Were it not for God's grace, there would be no salvation. All would perish. All would go to hell. Were it not for grace, all would be completely lost forever. And there would be no exceptions. Just as God established a covenant with Abram that was unilateral, it was, it was one-sided, it was eternal, it was by grace alone, so too God has made promises to every person who will repent and believe in God's only Son, Jesus Christ. He has promised that there is no other means of finding peace with God. He has promised that there is no other means by which a person can be reconciled to God. He has promised that there is no other means of being forgiven by God than to place saving faith in Christ, to repent of believing, of putting faith in yourself or in anything other than Christ, and to place all of your eggs in one basket, to place saving faith in Christ alone. When God saves a person... He brings them into a covenant relationship with Himself. And for that reason, we understand that these are, these are promises that He's made. And we understand that assurance isn't found in ourself. It's not found in the fact that you said some sinner's prayer. It's not found in the fact that maybe you raised a hand at a church. It's not found in the fact that maybe you came up to the altar during a church service. It's not found in anything that you have said. It's not found in anything that you have done. Assurance is found in the fact that God has promised. And that alone is the, is the place where we find assurance. He took the sins of His people away from them, as far as east is from the west, and He put them on His Son. And He took the righteousness of Christ and He put it on us so that we could be right before God, so that we could have right standing before God. And that alone is where assurance is found in knowing that God did that for us personally, for each one of us personally, for everyone who has trusted in Christ personally. Do you believe that? Listen to what, what we read in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. The header in, in our Bible is called the assurance of faith. He writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We're talking about a covenant here. By the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Do you do that? That's part of the reason we come together is to be reminded. Do you believe? Do you believe that God, that Jesus stepped out, He was fully God, fully man. He stepped out of eternity. He took on flesh. He was born to a virgin. He lived a perfect life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that His perfect righteousness has been imputed, freely given to you by grace and not by works because of what God has promises, because of what God has promised, not because of what you have done? Do you believe that Jesus was your substitute? That He bore your sin and He bore the wrath that you had earned for yourself? Do you believe that He lived the perfect, sinless life that you should have lived and He died the sinner's death that you should have died? And that He rose again on the third day to conquer death and to prove the payment for your sin was complete, was made in full. Do you believe that? As you look at your life, do you see good fruit? Jesus said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. Good tree, good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. Do you see good fruit being born in your life? Not because of anything you've done, but because of a change that God has made in you, in your desires, in the things that you love and the things that you hate. Has God made this change in you? If so, if you say yes to all these things, then all the assurance... All the confidence in the world is yours to believe in God's promises. If your faith is in Christ alone, God is with you. If your faith is in Christ alone, God is for you. And God is causing all things, all things, to work for your good and His glory molding you into the likeness of Christ through fire, through trials, through hardship, maybe through disappointments. But you will endure. You will endure. If your faith is in Christ alone, you will endure because your salvation is secure. And it is all by God's amazing grace for the glory of God of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for Your promises. We thank You for the promise that You would send a Messiah, a Savior, Your Son, to take our sin and our shame upon Himself and to take the punishment, the wrath that we deserve upon Himself and in exchange to give us His perfect righteousness. Robes of righteousness 
so that we may stand before you forgiven, so that we may stand before you in peace, so that we may stand before you reconciled. Not because of our faithfulness, but in spite of our weak faith. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us in moments where our faith is weak, where our faith is small. We ask for assurance. We ask for a greater sense of confidence in your promises for those moments, Lord. Grow us in our faith. Help our unbelief. Strengthen our belief. Strengthen our faith that we may endure every trial, every tribulation, every hardship, knowing that you are sovereign over it all. And nothing can come to pass that you don't either cause or allow. We thank you for the confidence, Lord, that that gives us. We thank you for your promises. Teach us, Lord, to look to your promises, to trust in your promises, and to live by your promises. For the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.